As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, where blood runs cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. Hope you're staying safe. It is so great to have as my guest today, James Eli Schiffer. He has been a professional journalist for 25 years and is currently an editor at the Star Tribune. His book is called The King of Skid Row, John Bassich and the Twilight Years of Old Minneapolis. So glad to have you here. Thank you. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Appreciate you talking to me about this. So this is one of those books where the backstory is just as, as fascinating as the book itself. Could you share it with my listeners? How did you come to write this book? Well, it started in, in kind of a strange way. I'm uh, not a native Minnesotan, but I married a native Minnesotan. So that gives me a little street cred here. When I moved here in 2005, I was sort of wandering around downtown Minneapolis and was puzzled that the center of town seemed to be this kind of empty zone, parking lots and sort of blocky 1960s buildings. And I thought, well, you know, we're down by the river here. Why isn't, why isn't this the old city? What happened here, you know? And then a friend who uh, we both shared a sort of a fascination with dive bars and things. He lent me a, a sort of a, a VHS tape, uh, which some of your listeners might remember, an ancient technology. But it had a, um, a rebroadcast of a TPT documentary that I watched it, and it was home movies from this guy named John Bassich, who owned a bar, a flop house, and a liquor store 
on the Skid Row, Minneapolis, back in the 1950s. And he had a Bell and Howell 16 millimeter camera that he, anytime anything was happening, he would run outside or, you know, film in his bar. And it was silent, but he had his, uh, he was narrating it. And it was just fascinating. You would not recognize this city. It was just something, I was like, I can't believe this is Minneapolis. This is what it looked like. And so I did a little research and learned that he had also taken a bunch of still photos, which had appeared here and there in different publications. And I thought, well, maybe I could do a story for the Star Tribune about those still photos of these, of the, all of these characters who lived in his flop house and drank at his bar and all of that. He would, he would document them for some reason. And I thought, okay, well, I wonder where they are now. So, you know, I kind of never found an obituary for John Bassett, even though I knew he'd be really old. So I found a phone number for his wife down in Florida. And I left a message for her saying, you know, do you ever know what happened to John's photos? So she called me right back and she said, well, why don't you ask him? And I said, okay. (laughs) She puts him on the phone. He's 90 years old. And he's like, you know, it's clear from the moment I speak to him that he's sort of uh, is not a big fan of the Star Tribune. And, but he's intrigued that I'm interested in his in his life and these pictures and all of that. And he says, well, I'm going to be in Minneapolis, come there every summer, you know, spend my winters in Florida. And when I come up to town, uh, let's meet and we can talk about what you want. And it kind of went from there. You know, I, it, it became more than a news article. I, I, I when I, after I met him, I, I interviewed him for probably two dozen times. He died in 2012 before the book came out, but I really, he just was a sort of a remarkable storyteller and, and kind of a, a, uh, just an amazing sort of vernacular documentary impulse that he had that we're so grateful for because he really was able to capture this sort of fascinating chapter in Minneapolis history. Absolutely. So he went by the name of Johnny Rex. Uh, did he give himself that name? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't, actually. I mean, he was, you know, uh, he was the sort of the king of Skid Row. And it, part of the reason that he went by Johnny Rex, it was actually uh, people had trouble pronouncing his last name. So because he was the king of Skid Row, his his lawyer, Scoop Loman, said, you know, you're Johnny Rex. You're the king. That's what that's that's who you are. And uh, he would tell me, John would tell me that sort of just the scene of him walking down the sidewalk in the in in the gateway district which is the other name for for the skid row area people you know all of these guys on the street would be walking backwards as he would be walking forward in front of him saying hey johnny rex johnny rex give me a dollar johnny rex (laughs) (laughs) that was that was kind of his uh that's he would have this sort of uh entourage you know because he was he was in he, he in this really strange environment this strange community he was the king so tell us about the boundaries of minneapolis's skid row and how do they relate or overlap with the city's gateway district so um the area we're talking about is where hennepin and nicollet kind of converge in downtown minneapolis they 
uh, there's a little sliver of a park there called Gateway Park. And all of that, um, Hennepin and Nicollet used to meet right at the river there, pretty much next to where the, uh, the post office, the main post office is now. The boundaries of that area are essentially, you know, four, four or five blocks in every direction from there. And this was the historic heart of Minneapolis. And I think you would find Skid Rose in most cities in kind of the oldest part of town. You know, this was where Minneapolis grew with the first bridge across the Mississippi River at Hennepin Avenue. And, you know, as the city developed and grew like crazy in the 19th in the late 19th century, bigger, newer buildings were built away from that area because they were just the, those buildings very quickly became uh, they were sort of small scale, low slung, two, three story commercial buildings. The original city hall was right there, uh, at Washington, Hennepin and Nicollet. And the new city hall was built where it currently is in the late, at the end of the 19th century, the turn of the 20th century, um, at, um, you know, fourth avenue and fourth street between fourth and fifth, um, fourth and fifth streets and third and fourth avenues. And so that was kind of, you know, most of the, the Dayton's was built in the early 20th century as well as kind of an example of how business and government were kind of moving away from that area. So it was already by the late 19th century, the city was already getting concerned about this neighborhood and it's sort of becoming more decrepit. It was the center of the um a migrant labor force seasonal labor force people would come men almost exclusively by the thousands would come to find jobs out in the farms and the forests and the uh mills in the upper you know all across the upper midwest they would come in and railroads primarily and they would ship out from there and uh they would spend you know their summers working and their winters Spending all their money in the bars and the flop houses and the uh, liquor stores of the of the Gateway District. Now, the Gateway name comes from it was actually an early kind of sort of uh, urban renewal effort. They were going to rebrand this neighborhood, the Gateway, to the city, and they built a park called Gateway Park with a very nice Beaux Arts pavilion. This was at the time of the kind of city beautiful movement of the progressive era of the early 20th century. So they had demolished a bunch of uh, bars and things and built this park, which uh, the timing was a little off because right not long after it was constructed, the Great Depression hit and the Gateway Park became the sort of center of uh, – unemployed, idle men hanging out, sleeping in the park and causing trouble. Yeah, I, I remember when I researched my book, yes. um, just being in awe of that area um, in the 1890s and, and early 1900s. It was it was packed with saloons, gambling houses, etc. Oh, sure. So oh, by yeah. the 1950s, it had, had fallen even further, right? Yeah, I mean, by the 1950s, the sort of, uh, you know, the, the, that neighborhood had served a really valuable role in the labor market, in the economy of the upper Midwest, really in the first, you know, uh, not quite a century, but but most of a century of the Minneapolis's existence. But by the 1950s, that seasonal labor market was mostly gone. Like you didn't you didn't need that kind of migrant labor force the way they had in the past. So a lot of the guys who live there were now permanent residents and they were, but they were very unlike 
what the 1950s kind of ideal of a family was. You know, the, the 1950s, uh, 1950s ideal was kind of a nuclear family living in a rambler where mom stays home, dad goes to work, couple kids. These were, by contrast, all of single men, almost entirely single men, nearly 3,000 of them in, in a uh, uh, survey that was taken in the mid-50s, uh, living in very tight conditions, a lot of them on pensions and social security. And they did not want to be in, this was their family, this was their community, living in, in, in really um, a lot of these hotels were these things called cage hotels, which they were basically living in cubicles right on top of each other, sharing a bathroom uh, with a large number of people. And, you know, they were, uh, this was their home. Some of them have been living there for decades, but this was very much viewed and, and in the language, the sort of sociological language of the time was viewed as deviant. So, you know, this was, even though these men had been sort of an important part of Minneapolis's history, they were really viewed as kind of strangers and, and, and deviant and people in need of help. They shouldn't, you know, a lot of them had drinking problems, but a lot of them didn't. And they were just, they lived there by choice, not because they were incapacitated or, or pathological in any way, but they were very much viewed and, and, and the physical environment of the gateway you know, these were these were low margin businesses, cheap bars and secondhand stores. And and so really the landlords and the owners of these buildings had not put a lot of money into them. You know, they couldn't afford to or they just there was no reason to. And they were really deteriorating. They were they were considered an eyesore, especially with all of these men kind of hanging out during the day on the sidewalks, getting into trouble, being drunk. The railroad stations kind of bookended the neighborhood. So people who were visiting the city, you know, arriving in the city, the first thing they would see was Skid Row. And that was very distressing to the city leaders. <laughs> it was just like, this is not the impression of Minneapolis we want to get. Right. And you write in your book that city leaders were extremely concerned with young women walking through that area, right? <laughs> yes, they were. It was It was a male environment, no question about it. Um, and you know, th yeah, I, I'm sure, I, I'm sure it was not a pleasant thing to have to be stepping over people or, you know, listening to, uh, whatever comments they were making as you walked by. Milwaukee Depot was still operating as a train station at this time, correct? Oh, sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the 1950s, you know, railroads were still the way you got around, um, you know, intercity trips. And so you had... The Milwaukee Depot on one side and the Great Northern on the other, which is at this, which was on the site of what's now the Federal Reserve. Got it. There are so many interesting stories in your book. Um, I do recall one that you wrote about, about one man who actually had a wife and a kid in South Minneapolis. Yes. And he chose not to, to live with them. Yes. I mean, that was uh, there was a it was by choice. A lot of cases. You know, people who wanted a different life than what was seen as the uh, as the ideal. And and I could tell you a little something that didn't that that I found out after the book. Uh, really, one of the more remarkable um, things that that one of the more remarkable conversations I had with someone who, who was interested in the book. I was curious when I was doing research for it whether there were any of these uh, 
characters who lived <laughs> in Skid Row who were still around. You know, they they were a lot of them. You know, this was not a, a long lifespan for people who were kind of in in those conditions. A lot of them, you know, heavy users of alcohol and and um and they were pretty old by the time Skid Row was finally demolished. But a, a few weeks after this book was published, someone called the University of Minnesota Press and asked to speak with me because they were interested in seeing pictures, uh, whether we had additional pictures of the different flop houses and things in Skid Row. And so I called him and he was a man in his 80s uh, living out in, um, I believe, uh, uh, Wright County. And he told me that when he was a young man, he had been working uh, in uh, some construction, I believe, and had injured himself. And at the time, he 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 was you know living with his wife and children, and in, in in a Rambler somewhere in like Brooklyn Center or Brooklyn Park. And he self-medicated to deal with his injury, became a drunk, and migrated to Skid Row in Minneapolis. A young man, unlike a lot of the others, and and he was sort of on Skid Row for a few years until he got himself cleaned up and moved back out to the uh, suburbs and sort of resumed his normal life. Now, it, it, it was just fascinating to me because it's such a modern story, right? You know, with the opioid addictions and, and people who injure themselves on, at, at work or in some other way, and then their life, they become addicted to opioids and their life falls apart. Fortunately, with this guy, he was able to get his act together, but he still remembered he, 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 he stayed in those cage hotels and things and, and had very vivid memories of it. And so I was like, wow, you know, a living connection to this area and that, yes, there was and 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 since I published the book and have sort of spoken to many, many groups about it, it's been astonishing to me the number of people who have connections to skid row like you know did i've heard so many things like you know my uncle was there or you know my father owned a bar on skid row it's just the you would think for something that was seemingly so deviant in the words of the time it was a part of a lot of people's lives yeah for sure so speaking of bars could you talk about some of the more infamous drinking joints in skid row I know the sourdough plays a big role in the story. Yes, that was John's bar, yes. But if, if someone was walking through that area in the late 50s, what are some of the places that they would have seen? Well, I mean, a lot of them were were just sort of really low-end establishments. I mean, there was nothing special about them as far as, you know, they were they were places to get cheap liquor. And John's bar, the sourdough, was named... That way, because his brother-in-law, who lived up in Alaska, also had a bar called the Sourdough and is in Ketchikan. Still exists, apparently. Love to go visit it sometime. So John, you know, sort of actually on his business card in the Sourdough Bar had it, it said Minneapolis, Minnesota, Ketchikan, Alaska. <laughs> um, now the Sourdough, he would describe it as, uh, you know, full of you know, all kinds of people. I don't know if that was really true, uh, but there were definitely some really marginal characters, some criminals. Uh, in the mornings, he said he would give coffee to the prostitutes when they were sort of off duty. Uh, he had a line of people, and there's there's a 
there are images of this in the movie, a uh, line of people who would who would be uh, there in the morning when it opened up to get five cent beers, you know, to take the edge off. As far as some of the other establishments, the one that I heard the most about uh, was a place called the Persian Palms. And the Persian Palms was kind of, I think the Persian Palms for a certain generation kind of had the uh, the mystique that many people now hold for and remember for Moby Dicks in the old Block E, and uh, which closed, I believe, in 1987. And uh, I'm sure, certainly I will always think about Nyes in that way as this legendary, legendary sort of bar that every kind of person went to and we sure miss we sure miss that place because <laughs> it had a lot of character the persian palms was like that it was a strip club you know three floor shows nightly it would advertise and it was you know there were the it was populated by these uh certain uh interesting characters called b girls who were uh if you were a, a guy and you went in there and you sat down and ordered a drink, you'd, you'd sort of find a, a woman coming up to you immediately asking for you to buy her a drink, sort of hanging on your arm. And she was in league with the bartender and they would get it. She would get a cut of that extra drink that you were buying. And that, you know, they, these, there were actually some city ordinances to deal with B girls because they were considered such a, uh, such a hazard or a, or a menace to, uh, to sort of uh, innocent drinkers, you know, one of the one of the things that was sort of notable about the um, Persian Palms was uh, they had a, a a traveling act that would come in. Um, I think she was based in Louisiana, but uh, her name was Divina, and she would do a striptease act in a um, tank filled with water and. Uh, it was apparently quite popular. Um, and, and actually just it is sort of an interesting footnote was the inspiration for a character in Louise Erdrich's new novel. <laughs> <laughs> Divina. She, she credits Divina in the, in the acknowledgements. <laughs> huh? Everybody shush. William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Wheel! Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. This book is, is jam-packed with fascinating characters, um, characters that would be long forgotten now if it, if it weren't for your interviews with Johnny Rex. Who are some of the especially big personalities that stick out for you? Well, you know, the, the people who watch the movie are taken by, and, and John has several shots of these guys 
uh, Emil Teske and Nick Feastall. And their pastime was pulling each other's noses and wrestling on the sidewalk. And, and it's like, that's pretty violent at times, but John loved these guys and, and they were, you know, former railroad workers, you know, and just, these two clowns, right, who were just sort of performing for him on the camera, but just doing it anyway. He he had a little story about all these guys. You know, there was the guy who was uh, he ran a little animal circus on the side of the road in Alabama and somehow ended up here. And then there was a guy who was a incredibly talented tinsmith, could make anything out of tin. Everyone in John's kind of orbit was he he remembered he would always like interview them about their lives and take pictures of them and sit down with them and talk to them about it you know he he talks about uh, a woman who would hang out in his bar and he has a, there's a picture of her in the book moon-faced marianne he called her and and just was very it was interesting it, it was a very male environment this is one of the few women that he sort of talked about as being sort of one of his one of his favorite habitues of the bar and just uh you know she would she was a she was a sex worker as we would call it in today's parlance but um you know she's she also shows up in the movie as well and i i think that he had a sort of a you know he 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 didn't look down on people in the, in that sense, you know, he was, he was very much, he really, he really felt like these folks were his family. And, and I think that's something that really comes across, but at the same time, it's like, as people rightly bring up, he was also selling liquor, cheap liquor to alcoholics. I mean, is it, he's an ethically complicated person. <laughs> no question about it. Yeah. I think you wrote in your book that he bragged about serving eight ounces of beer in a 12 ounce glass. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, that's, uh, you know, it was not a high margin business, I don't think. One of the best parts of your book, the photographs, uh, worth the price just for those, although it's an amazing book from beginning to end. But you look at some of these pictures of these guys, and a lot of them are just men posed in their little cubicles, sitting on their chair, nameless, or something so sad and wonderful at the same time. Yes. About the moment that was captured on film. Yes. There was just so much pathos in those photographs. Yes. And that was really, I have always thought about, I've always been fascinated with photography and, and mystery as well. The idea that we would have all these pictures. And I, I went through every one of his pictures with him and asked him, do you remember, who is this? Who is this? Who is this? And he, he you know, if I got into him five years earlier, I think I probably would have gotten a lot more answers, but by the time I was interviewing him, he was already in his nineties and you know, he, he was not, he didn't have total recall. <laughs> um, but no, I was really moved by that. I would say one of my motivations in writing this book was to present these images and sort of give these guys some humanity back because there was so much research done at the time there was this was a very studied population the university of minnesota's sociology department was contracted by the city of minneapolis to do an intensive study of the conditions on the skid row to try to figure out what they could do with these guys um and what they should do about the neighborhood and sort of to prevent another skid row from showing up somewhere else but in all of that research 
and and all of the sort of photography that the city commissioned that artists from the University of Minnesota would you know art department took pictures there's no names you know the people are just they're sort of they're kind of uh seen their scenery they are they are subjects they you know but they're not really individuals and that's what I really wanted to do and I felt like John really did think of them as individuals and then I felt like if I could sort of bring a little humanity and remember that these were these were people who were sort of uh, players in in Minneapolis's history, you know, and and that that's what I found so moving about his film and also the photos, the photos that he took and others took, and 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 the the newspaper. I mean, the Tribune and the Star were just all over trying to get rid of skid row it was like a it was like a huge priority for the owners of the of the tribune company to cole's media to sort of do something about this urban blight so there was a lot of journalism done but most of it in the beginning was not very uh was was pretty it it, it was pretty it denigrated the people who were there and but, you know, some of the later journalism, actually, you did see actually people having names and interviewing the actual residents of Skid Row. So I tried to sort of use some of that, too, to sort of recover some of these names. Was there ever any talk about saving the buildings? Uh, I know the answer to this already. <laughs> <laughs> well, but yeah. why was it just easier to raise everything? Um well, you know, they had tried piecemeal to do something about the neighborhood over the years. Like the Gateway Park that I mentioned, the Nicollet Hotel was built in the 1920s as an effort to sort of stop the spread of Skid Row down Hennepin and the Nicollet Avenues. Uh, they built the post office, the current building that's there in 1931, as another sort of urban renewal effort but i think by the 1950s minneapolis was really a different city it, it kind of emerged um in the aftermath of world war ii trying to shed its you know the the kind of reputation that 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 it earned with the era that you write about which kind of held on through most of the early part of the 20th century that minneapolis was kind of a little chicago you know corrupt government gangsters kind of running wild um, with its mayor, Hubert Humphrey was determined to sort of make Minneapolis seem like a more of a progressive place. Now he was only mayor for a few years, uh, from 45 through 48 when he was elected to the Senate. But at that time, he really kind of changed the narrative in Minneapolis and Minneapolis was determined to do something big and that they thought, okay, well, urban renewal, we're starting to get money, federal money for this gigantic task. Why don't we be a, a, a leader in taking on this sort of long time priority of the city to clear away Skid Row? And so we're going to, you know, prior to Minneapolis's gateway project, it was really a it had been more of a sort of a housing you know building housing projects uh not right in the core of cities but this was primarily a commercial area that they were going to completely demolish the one building that was that they got a fight over was the um the the metropolitan building you know northwestern 
the the building that uh, Larry Millette recently published a book about that that story has kind of been told is is that you know the, the that the d- destruction of that building really launched the historic preservation movement in Minnesota, but it was um that that was the one thing that they got to fight about. But a lot of these other buildings were really in bad shape. They had not had any investment for a long time. There was descriptions of rats being able to run basically unhindered from one building to another as if like little little skyways for rats wow (laughs) and so there was they would have required a huge amount of investment but i mean what we lost we lost the historic fabric we lost 40 percent of downtown minneapolis in sort of over a period of two or three years yeah and that was 1960 61 kind of started in earnest in 1960 and was pretty much done by 63 hmm so one thing that I want to ask you about, there are a lot of mentions of Gandhi dancers in your book. Yes. Could you tell us yes. the origin of that term? It's really interesting. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and uh, Johnny, Johnny Rex would call his guys Gandhis for short. It was short for Gandhi dancer. Gandhi dancer is kind of a term of unknown origin, but it, what it refers to are railroad workers like railroad workers and 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 it's been speculated that it might describe their kind of dancing around the rails to get out of the way of trains when they're coming down uh when they're doing their work but they really don't know where that that term came from but there is a, a there is a gandy dancer state trail in Wisconsin so that the name is the name lives on I've walked through that area many times there's still a couple of buildings that exist from the late 19th century on Washington Avenue. Yes. Do you know why a few were saved? Well, the the discussion of what would stay and what would go was a hotly debated issue, as you might imagine. I mean, all there was no major landowner. It was like all these individual landowners. A lot of these properties were owned by estates, and that made it even more complicated. Um, there were negotiations that, you know, where to draw the boundaries was a, was a big deal. Um, you know, there are, in terms of in that, in that core area, there is nothing left, um, except the only structure in, in that kind of core area that remains is a flagpole that had been placed by the daughters of the American revolution. You can still see it at the northern end of the sliver of Gateway Park that's left next to the Towers condominiums. Um, that That's the only piece that's remaining. Uh, you know, on the edge, obviously, the, the Milwaukee Depot, um, uh, former train station, now a hotel, is is still there, although its cupola has been gone for a long time. Uh, that That's a – and there is a federal building – where uh, there's a passport office in that too, sort of in the Beaux-Arts style that's across the street from uh, from the Milwaukee Depot. Beyond that, um, there are not a lot of 19th century buildings left in that area. You will find, the, I mean, you have the Lumber Exchange, which is, which is kind of out of that area, and you will find, I always, when I've done walking tours of that area, I say there is, um, if you want to get a sense of the sort of streetscape of the gateway if you look at the 100 block on the south side of the street the 100 block of washington avenue north there's um there is uh it's the block that contains uh runyons and uh um a few other businesses there right that that is kind of the scale 
of those buildings. Nothing fancy, you know, nothing really like hugely architecturally uh, interesting, but still sort of like the it gives you the uh, it gives you the sort of sense of what it looked like. But there's really, you know, you, you when I when I take people on tours of that area, I'm like, this is the tour of the imagination because you're really not going to see. You're really not going to see anything like what it looked like. It is it's, the destruction was just so total, um, even to the extent that they they changed the street network. So, you know, John Bassett's liquor store was at the corner of Second Street and Nicollet Avenue. That intersection is gone. There's a tennis court there. You know, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it is really takes an act of imagination um, to to see that. Now, the, the, what I, you know, the other, the other comparison is the original Skid Row in the United States was Pioneer Square area in Seattle, Washington. And that neighborhood is now quite preserved and it's the center of the tourist sort of stop. So if you want to see what the Gateway District looked like, go to Seattle. So what did John Bassage think about the destruction of his neighborhood? Um, you know, it's it's surprising. You, you would have thought, given his sort of nostalgia for it, that he would have been against it. But no, he thought it was the right thing to do from just a he was kind of a hard nosed businessman, you know, just from the purpose of he's like the tax money. He would say this. The tax money that they're getting out of there is far more than it was from the buildings they had there before. So it was like for a financial decision for the city. It was a smart thing to do. He part of his explanation for making these movies and taking these pictures is he knew that this neighborhood was not long for the world and that he felt an urge to document it. And he does have warm memories about it, although his movie is not nostalgic at all. It is very gritty. And in times at times, it's really hard to watch because of the violence that happened there. I mean, it was not. And the degradation of alcoholism, you know, it's it's not a pretty picture, a lot of it, but it's but it's, you know, it's life. Right. But he was he was not at all reluctant to say that he thought this was the right thing to do. Is there a place where people can see that film now? Yes. Right on my website, kingofskinrow.com. Oh, perfect. Great. He passed away in 2012, right? 2012. Yeah, before he knew the book was coming out, but uh, unfortunately didn't live to see it. So you talked to him a good two dozen times, right? Correct. Yeah, something like that. What a source. Yes. No, I really, I, I miss him. He was, he was a great conversationalist. And, uh, you know, um, just really, you know, I wrote his obituary for the Star Tribune and uh, interviewed John Lightfoot, who did a documentary film about John back in 98. And he said, you know, he was really the embodiment of old Minneapolis. And that's, 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 I think, a really cogent thing. He, there was, there's a sense of an old Minneapolis. You know, this is what, this is just something that is not here anymore. But he, this guy really embodied it. Did he ever mention Kid Can, um, characters like that? I did. I did ask him about Kid Can. Um, he didn't really have much. He, he, uh, um, he was, uh, he was more, he was more friendly with Kid Can's brother. Um, and, you know, was sort of the, Kid Can's brother was kind of described as kind of the brains of the operation. I mean, I I'm not an expert on Kid Can. Um, but I did, he, he really, 
he didn't really have um much trouble uh he would have had more trouble with uh organized crime in Minneapolis if he had really tried to um muscle in on territory outside of the gateway which he eventually did but uh you know at the time he was there was not a lot of money to be made selling liquor in the gateway district <laughs> so it was not of much interest to the sort of uh, the kind of, uh, crooked establishment that controlled liquor licenses outside of, you know, Skid Row. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. One last thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, in your book insert, you mention a multimedia history about the murder of a Minneapolis journalist in 1945 called Rubbed Out that yes. you were part of. Yes. Could you tell us about that? Yes, and that that is uh, uh, I can I can steer you to that website too. Um, Arthur Casherman was a uh, sort of you know he would be the equivalent of like a blogger today, uh, you know, just kind of a solo operator printing occasional uh, his newspapers, just sort of a one man operation, and you know, um, definitely with a slant. Uh, but he had a long tradition in Minneapolis, these sorts of, uh, these sorts of freelance kind of one man band publishers who were kind of muckrakers. I mean, they were, they were willing to say some things that the big dailies, uh, were afraid of, you know, basically calling out the city administration for its corruption. And he paid with his life. I mean, he was, uh, he, he was calling out uh Marvin Klein who was the who was the mayor in the mid 1940s for the corruption that the Klein administration represented and the sort of uh uh you know the deals made with gangsters and the sort of uh you know there had been two murders of Minneapolis journalists in the 1930s um um Howard Guilford and Walter Liggett and they were both unsolved. Kid Can had been put on trial for Walter Liggett's murder and was acquitted. Um, no one had ever been charged with Howard Guilford's killing. And, um, you know, Arthur Casherman was well aware of this. He was beaten up. He was sort of sent to jail on trumped up charges. And he called out the Klein administration and was murdered, um, you know, drive by shooting January 1945. And that the killing of Casherman became an issue in Hubert Humphrey's mayoral campaign, which was successful, basically, you know, as an example of the sorts of uh, lawlessness that would happen in Minneapolis streets. So Casherman, who is not remembered as much of a journalist, is, uh, I think, deserves a little more credit for having the courage to speak out against the things that were happening in the city and the sacrifice that he made. So is there a way that people can access that? Yeah, it's still up. It's, it's not in it. I can, I can, I can direct you to it. it the URL is jamesschiffer.com slash rubbed out. Well, I, well, I highly recommend this book. A wonderful snapshot of a bygone Minneapolis era. The photographs are great. And the relationship you built with Johnny Rex and how you were able to, to get the information you got for this book is just riveting to me. It's available in local bookstores and online. Oh, yeah. You get it on Amazon. You, there's uh, the links on my website, kingofskidrow.com. Thanks again so much for your time. Thank you, Eric. It's been fun. Again, I have been speaking to James Eli Schiffer. 
His book is called The King of Skid Row, John Bassich and the Twilight Years of Old Minneapolis. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. Until next time.